Well, every pastor needs a pastor in their life. And this weekend, it's my privilege to introduce to you my pastor. Uh, Dr. Michael Sprague was my boss for about five years and the senior pastor of Trinity Church from where I worked. And I remember still even today, in 2006, about 9 o'clock at night, I sent an email cover letter to Dr. Michael Sprague inquiring about a job opportunity. And Ten minutes later, he calls me. And I remember immediately uh, we began to have just a connection. And immediately uh, we began to have an opportunity that, that God saw fit at that time and that place to bring us together, to minister together, uh, but not only that, to become lifelong friends. Um, I'll let Michael tell you a little bit about himself, but what I want to say about Michael is this. I've seen him in great joy. I've seen him in great sorrow. I've seen him in a crucible, and I've seen him in great uh, dire circumstances. I've seen him as a pastor. I've seen him as a man. I've seen his family. He's been in every house I've lived in since I've known him. I've, lived in, I've been in the one house he's lived in since I've known him. But I'll tell you, uh, Michael is a man of character. He's a man of integrity. And he's a man we can trust. And so this weekend, we're privileged to have him with us. And I'm excited about that. And I hope you are too. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his life and what he does and help us come to understand how God wants to use us as influencers for him. And so let's give Dr. Michael Sprague a warm welcome. Whoops, Stephen, might need to use the other one. There we go. Good deal. Well, uh, you can't get a better introduction than that one. And, uh, it, you know, Stephen's in my heart. We're, we're buddies. Uh, he's my friend. He's my colleague in ministry. It's a joy to have served with him. And uh, you got him now. And, you know, in the good sense, I'm a little bit jealous of that now. But uh, you couldn't have a finer man who who practices a simplicity and sincerity of devotion to Jesus. And in just my mind, there's nothing better than that. And uh, then to see Matthew. Where's Matthew Lay? Matthew, stand up. I met Matthew, and, you know, Matthew's like this. And now he's joining among the, the group of men. And give Matthew a hand for being here. God has a special plan for this young man's life, and I can't wait to see it, and I'm watching the ride, and Matthew, I love you, and thanks for joining with us. God bless you. Thanks. Well, uh, I want to uh, uh, just tell you how glad I am to be among some friendly folks. Stephen's been telling me about all of you, and uh, I've had a full week. Uh, I, I spent the early part of the week down at uh, the Capitol in Baton Rouge as we had a special session, so I'm down with legislators, connecting with senators and uh, state uh, representatives. 
I lead a Bible study with legislators. I lead two groups with lobbyists. And then I pulled some regional leaders together on Tuesday and met with them. Uh, Wednesday, I I kicked off the day, and uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning, I I got a call from one of the key people in leadership in the state. And uh, he says, you've got to help me, and you've got to help spare my life. And, uh, you know, a guy can climb the ladder and get all the way to the top and find out it's leaning against the wrong wall. Well, that was this guy. And in his brokenness, in a matter of minutes, I got him into a treatment center. And uh, the head of that treatment center says, I've never met someone more ready to have his life changed by Jesus than this guy. Just totally broken, but totally open to what God might do. Here's a key leader in the state of Louisiana. He's checking himself in for three or six months and just devoting his life for Jesus to reorganize that. Made my morning, made my day. I needed it to make my day because I never dreamed that by Thursday morning, I'd be on the front page of our newspaper, on the second page of our second newspaper, in our third newspaper, uh, I would have a national publication write an article on me and get a call this morning from Fox News to be interviewed. Uh, Wednesday afternoon, all I was called upon was to be a pastor and to show up at a town hall meeting and open in prayer. And so I did just what I was supposed to do. I got there early. They told me to sit in the front row. I had a suit on. I was ready to pray. And little did I know there's going to be 800 people there, 800, well, I should say about 790 angry people there. And uh, the senator's late, and uh, I'm kind of the same build as the senator, same age, same color hair, and when the 200 got into the room, they all thought I was a senator, and there was just a barrage of people standing up like this going, shame, 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 shame. And then I had people come up to me and call me a Nazi and Hitler and never been called those things before. And then by the time the senator got in, the group was really amped up. And, you know, I'm first in the program, so I get up to pray. And, uh, I mean, you couldn't control this group. And, uh, you know, I'm just calling attention to... God's here, God help us, God give us wisdom. That's my job. And uh, during the entire prayer, I was shouted down. Uh, Every sentence, there were just calls from the audience. And and then, of course, you know, my heart is to pray in Jesus' name, amen. And that almost brought the the roof down. And uh, the press was there, cameras were everywhere, And, uh, you know, kind of the theme that got out there in newspapers was, uh, here's the pastor, here's the preacher, where they're booing Jesus. And, uh, you know, then the senator's done, the crowd is escorted out by 90 policemen that were there that day. And, uh, you know, I I watch the, the news interviews, then I wander around back, and, you know, I'm parked by the police out in the loading dock. Well, all the 700 people think the senator is going to escape through the back door, so they're back by my car. And I walk outside, they think I'm the senator again. I mean, they got signs, they got cameras, they got their fingers pointed. I'm Hitler once again. And I tell you, it was quite a day. So I'm here with some friendly faces, I think. (laughs) I hope to keep it that way with you. But I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this all week long. 
And, and so I'm, I'm grateful, guys. I'm just grateful. I want to open up with a word of prayer as well, if you join me, and then we'll jump into our topic tonight. Uh, God, uh, Lord, uh, little do we uh, know just what will echo down in eternity. And perhaps something tonight or something this weekend will just mark our lives that really will impact our whole life and even eternity. And I would pray to that end and declare tonight with these men that we belong to God and this retreat belongs to God. We bring the life and resurrection of Jesus at the start of this retreat against all discouragement, pain, isolation, exhaustion, despair, disappointment, hopelessness, shame, fear, loss of heart, loss of purpose, for you, God, to do what you want to do. We know that those things need to be killed or set aside or they will eat our lunch and they'll eat our dreams up. And so, Jesus, we ask that you do what you do best. Sometimes you comfort the disturbed and sometimes you disturb the comfortable. But I pray that you wouldn't allow us to be in just a, a kind of phony kind of faith. That you would interrupt our life and we give you permission to do that. That you would wreck what needs to be wrecked and put back together what needs to be put back together. Lord, maybe you want to test us or encourage us, challenge us, start us to dream again in some area. Help us to start to sort out some stuff or find God or lean into you, Lord, more and more. God, I believe you want us to build friendships and take next steps and be humble and in some ways just hang out together. But Lord, it would be a delight, a delight in my heart if these, were, if these men heard five or 10 or 15 or 20 words from you, Jesus, in a personal way. Because five words from Jesus are better than a thousand words from a preacher. And so speak, Lord. I believe these men are listening. And if some man here needs to pray that most dangerous prayer of all, God, if you're real, show me. I pray you give him the courage to pray that prayer. And I'll thank you even now for what you're going to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh... Just a, a quick look at what I, I have heard your theme verse is, and that's in First Chronicles. And it's First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. And it speaks of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what to do. And, and that's where I want to start in this first session as we look, about, look at becoming men of influence. Men, each of us, men who better understand our times and know what to do. And so tonight, and in your discussion, I want you to think about the world in which we live. And I want to do this under the theme of, is there hope for America? Uh, I get asked that question an awful lot. And many people come up to me and say, is God done with the United States of America? Is God done with the United States? And I don't think he's done with the United States by a long shot. But sometimes I wonder if men, leaders, some people are done with God. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said right at our founding of our nation, he says, I've lived a long time and I've observed that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. 
He says, if we, and he was speaking to Jefferson, Washington, Adams, Madison, if we do not rely upon his aid in this political house, we will be no different than the builders of Babel. And coming from Franklin, uh, I think those were wise words. Because if you look down through the contours of history, every great superpower that's ever come has gone, right? Most ending up on the ash heap of history, most after 200 to 250 years. And I ask you, uh, you know, historian types, how old's the United States of America? What, 241 or so? You know, right in that area. And, uh, you know, if we think we are invincible, invincible, we can't be taken out because of our technology or our smarts or our ingenuity or our military or our economy, we better be careful because Psalm chapter 2 says that when people or a nation do this to God, remember what Psalm 2 says God does? He laughs. God just laughs. He does. Now, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I am a student of the Word of God, and I'm a student of history, and I believe our future lies in one of two places, either humility or humiliation. Humility or humiliation. Check me on this and see what you think. I can see the humiliation path playing out uh, in a real way. After all, that's what's happened to every other great superpower that's ever come. They start real well, but over time they slip away from the values that got them there. They get big, fat, and happy, and then they kind of drift. Usually they fall apart from within before they're conquered from without. And I look at our country. I mean, there's some cliffs that, you know, we're pretty close to. There's a debt cliff of almost $20 trillion. It's a ticking time bomb. I don't know when it's going to go off, but someday it'll bite us. There's economic cliffs and moral cliffs and spiritual cliffs, racial cliffs, responsibility, or maybe I should say irresponsibility cliffs. I could see how things could spiral out of control real quick. Could you? Even the cardinal, the Catholic cardinal in Chicago said, as he looks at our drift, He said, I fully expect to die in my own bed. I expect my successor to die in prison, meaning as a a martyr. He says, I fully expect his successor to die in the public square for their faith. That's the Catholic cardinal. That's the humiliation path. I can see it happening. Then there's the humility path. Maybe you can see this one. I can see this one just as well. Also, Scripture says God resists the proud, but he gives what to the humble? He gives grace to the humble. And God's the kind of God who just delights that when somebody humbles themselves, his people, and they seek his face and they pray and they turn from their ways, God has this ability to take a person and kind of remake them and renew them and recharge them and even to bring about healing. And I could see God doing that in our country among people as well. I think back to, to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. If God could reach, and it looks to me like in Daniel chapter 4, he reached Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. If he could reach Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, God could do that. Could he reach leaders of all types today? I mean, do you believe that he could? 
I mean, in Jonah, at Nineveh, a capital city, these were the very inventors of terrorism. It says there that there was perhaps the greatest revival of all time. And God reached everybody in that capital city. It says from the greatest to the least. And I don't know in our terms who you'd put there. Maybe, you know, Donald Trump to Kim Kardashian. Or you fill in the names of how you'd put that. But if he did that back then, do you believe he could do it today? If there was once a great awakening in America, do you believe there could be a second? Isn't God's right hand still strong? Isn't his grace still available? Doesn't he still love the world and want none to perish but all to come to repentance? I believe that the humility path is possible. In fact, I not only believe it, I pray for it. I beg God for it. I yearn for that to happen where there's a revitalization and people come to Jesus Christ in a personal way. There's nothing I yearn for more. And I pray that that ends up being our path. Now, uh, just a little bit about me, just so you know who you got up there. You know I'm connected with Stephen, so I'm in good company there. But uh, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Please don't hold that against me. Uh, My dad worked for one of those super secret spy agencies. They're probably listening in right now. Uh, But it was one of those jobs, if he told me what he did, he'd have to kill me. Uh, My brother works at the Capitol. He was... uh, he was there on 9-11. He was in Tom Daschle's office both times they found the anthrax after 9-11. My brother-in-law was in the Pentagon on 9-10, right where it got hit. And on 9-11, he watched the plane go into the building. My sister-in-law works for the National Security Agency. Everyone was government. That's what I was kind of destined for, except for God had other plans. I uh, I pastored in the Washington, D.C. area for 15 years, right in the backyard of Bethesda Naval, Walter Reed, and and, uh, NIH, if you're familiar with that area. Uh, I finished up a program at Dallas Seminary and became senior pastor at Trinity Church in Covington, Louisiana. And uh, I never imagined that I would be at ground zero for the greatest natural disaster in American history, Hurricane Katrina. August 29, 2005, absolutely changed my life. And you never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you got. And then you find out Jesus is all that you need. Uh, I had a tree through uh, my home. We were refugees for a time. We bunked in with others. Then we lived in one room while they rebuilt the house. Uh, 50% of the people in our ministry knew someone who died in Katrina. Uh, 80% of the people lost their jobs or had to remake it. 80% lost their homes or had tremendous damage. 95% of the people were scattered across the United States, and we didn't know if we'd survive. Uh, But there's Jesus. And uh, we were an evangelical free church, the only one beside the mission church there. God had 30,000 volunteers come and sleep in our worship center, 100 to 300 a week. We ate there in the worship center, uh, sent people out, and it was, I had prayed 29 years of my life that I'd see a revival kind of time, and we were seeing people come to Christ and God at work. It was miracles sometimes every 10 minutes, and uh, I, I saw that ministry just morph 
so that the evangelical free church said, let's put our, let's work with you and let's put our uh, headquarters for our national and international ministry on the campus of that church. And it's there now doing the work for free churches around the world, wherever there's a disaster. Uh, God taught me so much. But uh, then uh, after six years after, uh, five years after Katrina, I had people tell me, you know, nobody works with leaders. Hardly anybody cares about leaders. Michael, you should work with leaders. And I decided to step down from being senior pastor. I wanted to write a book. And uh, I wanted to start a ministry to reach out to a mission field that prior to that, I kind of wasn't even on my radar screen. And so I serve now as chaplain to the state of Louisiana, and I basically reach out to elected leaders behind the scenes, pray for them, listen to them, care for them, don't want anything from them, except where they want to take a next step in their faith, I want to be there to introduce them to Jesus or to help them grow in Jesus. And so it's been uh, quite, quite a ride. I want to jump into scripture here, and uh, if you could turn to uh, Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, it says there in verse 1, then They came to the other side, this is Jesus and the disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerizines. And uh, this this expression, the other side of the sea, it's not just geography, it's kind of a technical term. This is the other side of the railroad tracks. Uh, If you look at verse 20, this is Decapolis, uh, the ten cities. Uh, The rabbis taught that when Joshua went in and took the promised land, Uh, when he pushed out the people in that land, this is where they ended up. Uh, This would have been people like uh, the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the, you know, the termites and the websites and, you know, all those ites. This is enemy territory. Uh, This is uh, where the Romans lived. Uh, This was an area where there was pagan worship, uh, sexuality that was out of control. This is where cults were and mismanaged anger and violence. That's this area that Jesus takes these young disciples to. And if you look there in verse 2, you find when they got out of the boats immediately, uh, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And we won't read all of this just for time, but if you get the picture here, this was a guy Scripture, if you put it all together, he had wild hair, bloody wrists. Matthew's account said he was stark naked, arms flailing, animalized, voice screaming, scabs, infections. Uh, He's just self-destructive, deformed, unkept with lacerations. I mean, can you picture this guy? Uh, How many of you guys like horror movies? Could you put your hands up? Okay, all six of you. How many of you don't like horror movies? This is kind of the Halloween scene of the scriptures. I mean, can you picture this? Jesus arrives in this area that these young disciples had never been before, and they never would have got a permission slip from their parents. This is the area where they land, and they end up 
in a cemetery of all places. Anyone know the story? What kind of animals were there in the cemetery? Anyone know what comes a little bit later? What animals? Yeah, pigs. And what's a young Hebrew think of pigs? Uh, Unclean, right? Unkosher. Here's these young disciples, and they can't believe where they are. They don't want to take steps in that direction. And then they notice that this guy's running right at them, stark naked and crazy. And I don't know about your picture, but here's my picture. I think Jesus stood there like a rock. And the disciples were huddled behind him saying, Hey, hey, Jesus, there's the boat. Jesus, let's get out of here. But Jesus stands there, and the man comes right up to Jesus, falls down, and Jesus asks him his name. And what's his name? Yeah, Legion. And a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers, 120 horsemen, and then technical staff. And we don't know exactly how many demons were in this guy, but there was a lot of them. And Jesus cares about this person. In fact, he takes the demons and he casts them into the pigs. The pigs run over a cliff. And you can imagine the, the pig owner coming out there and saying, you know, what happened to my pigs? Well, they just committed mass suicide. And that's losing a lot of bacon, isn't it? Some others come out and they're just trying to get a hold of this thing because Legion all of a sudden is in his right mind. And they're looking at Legion and they're looking at Jesus. And you'd think they'd be doing high fives. But it says that they were frightened and they asked Jesus to leave. They asked Jesus to get out of here. And it's a crazy scene. But Legion, his heart's so big now, he's been set free. He asked Jesus if he can go with them. Can I travel with you? Can I become your 13th disciple? Can I go to Israel with you? And what's Jesus, of course, say? Yeah, strange here. He says, no. Look what he says down there in 19 and 20. It says, uh, it says there, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis. I mean, imagine the, the day. Legion walks back into town, his hometown. And this is the guy mom said to the kids, never, never, never play with Legion. The police always kept their, their eye on Legion. And mom says, close the curtains, kids get inside. And Legion's coming down Main Street and finally someone goes out and says, Legion, is that you? And he had a smile on his face and joy seeming in his heart. And he probably had some clothes on. And you know, what would someone have asked Legion? What's the question they would have said? Legion. Legion, what happened to you? And what was the answer? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. You know, you Bible students, who's the first missionary that Jesus ever sent out? You know, was it a seminary student? Someone trained for a long time? No, it was a pig-eating, tomb-dwelling, chain-bound, demon-possessed guy who had Jesus touch him and he decided to get in the game. That's who Jesus first sent out. And many scholars say that Jesus only returned back to this area again one more time, Matthew chapter 15. And the first time Jesus shows up, no one's there. When a few come, they say, get out of here. The only guy is one guy. 
Next time he comes in Matthew chapter 15, it says the crowds came, and this is in Decapolis. The pagan people are praising the God of Israel. What happened? There was one guy the first time. There were crowds of people the second time and a whole different attitude. What changed in that year or so time period? What changed? Legion. One guy said, I'm going to just share my story. I'm going to reach out to those around me. One guy. What I want you to think about tonight in your small group and, and here as we move on is, uh, what's your Decapolis and who's your legion? You know, what's your world like? Uh, you know, how do you, how do you sense that people are in your world spiritually or just what place are they in your, in, in life? You know, who's the person that's far from God that you've got a heart to see them take a step, a step toward Jesus? Who's the person that's all got it together outwardly, but you know, you know, they're missing something inside. Who's the person struggling with alcohol or just struggling because they're unemployed? Who's the person in the next cubicle or down the hall from you at your office that just doesn't have anybody to hang out with for lunch? Or maybe there's no person that probably prays for them. I'd like you to think about your world in very personal, practical ways. Who's your legion? What's your Decapolis? How would you characterize your world? You know, my world has changed. I used to be you know, in a nice, safe, comfortable suburban church. I mean, we did all the things nice, nice, safe, comfortable suburban churches do. Then Katrina came, and God wanted to teach me first and foremost something and to push me outside of those four walls. You know, I'm convinced God was up to something, and I was one of the key people he wanted to do something in. You know, now I've moved into an area outside the four walls, and I'm with political types, People ask me all the time, Michael, how in the world could you ever work in that world of politics that's nasty and dirty and backstabbing and slander? And I always say to them, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. I was pastor and senior pastor for 26 years. I got a PhD in that stuff. (laughs) And if you've ever worked in church circles and committees and religious organizations in the community, you can have the best of times. But in the flesh, a whole bunch of stuff can happen there too. I tell you, I found God's planted in me a great love for this new mission field of leaders. And I found really guys who serve in politics really aren't any different than any other sphere. Uh, Academia, you know, construction work, you know, those in information systems, those, you know, who work, you know, wherever. I find that they're just people. That's who they are. When I started this, I just started setting up appointments. And I got, I got a group of uh, city leaders in New Orleans together. And they want me to come and, and speak to them. After a month of helping them get started in the scripture, one guy says, all my life I thought, I thought you got to God by good works. I've seen for the first time it's by grace. I had another guy after four months. He said, my wife cornered me last night. She said, there's something different about you. What is it? Here's what he said. I just turned 60. I think I'm finally starting to grow up. 
But he said to his wife, I think I have Jesus in my life for the very first time. I, I, I tell you, I, I got together with another guy. I, I, knocked, I knocked on his door, got an appointment with an elected leader, a key elected leader. It was my first one I went to. You know, I told him my little spiel was I don't, I don't want any money. I don't have any favors. I don't have an agenda. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. But uh, uh, I won't be a pain in your backside, but I found that if leaders don't have a vital connectedness to the person of Jesus and some encouragement and accountability, in one, five, ten years down the road, the best people turn into people they'd never want to be. And I said, if that would help you, if you'd have any interest, I'd love, I'd love to serve. But if you're not interested or have someone, I'll just be out your door. I zipped my lips and was quiet. And he called down to his assistant and said, put Michael on for a once-a-month standing one-hour appointment. Got into the Word of God with him. He started eating it up. I came back the second time and he says, could you do what you did the first time? It was so good. He'd never been in the Word of God before. He said the second time, I'm pulling all of our legislators together for a legislative retreat. I want you to tell them everything you taught me last time from the Bible. I'm like, right, I'm going to get together with all the legislators. Two weeks later, I got the agenda for this retreat. Governor Bobby Jindal, uh, Mayor Mitch Lander of New Orleans, the head of the Senate, the head of our pro basketball team in New Orleans, and me. Those guys got 20 minutes. I got 60 minutes to pour scripture into our legislators. And I just absolutely pinched myself that, oh God, you can open up any door that you want. I I talk to leaders now, and here's the thing I tell leaders all the time, and I want to say this to you, and you might not get it the first time, but 90% of the people that God used in the word of God were not pastors or priests. Have you ever studied that? 90% weren't pastors or priests. Every once in a while, he throws us a bone. Oh, okay, we'll let you serve and do something. Who's the people, by and large, that God always uses? Who is it? It's uh, people who work for the government. It's business people. It's people in the military. It's moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas It's people like everybody here, right? In the Word of God. That's who God, by and large, uses. I mean, think of it. He used Legion. Legion didn't have a whole lot of training, and he couldn't have quoted many verses, if any. All he could do was say, here's my story. I talk sometimes to elected leaders. Tuesday I had uh, 30 of them. Whenever I tell them that, and I tell it regularly about that 90%, they say, Michael, tell us that again because we need to hear it. I want to say to you men, 90% of the people God used in the Word of God were not, quote, pastors or priests or those in the vocational realm. He uses regular people over and over again. Monday at my Bible study, I was so excited. I, I had this guy, he's been in Bible study for three years. He wants to share something, and he says, I don't know that I've ever shared Jesus with anyone in my entire life. This week, I had a coworker, 
And I just got to Sharon and I told him about all the personal stuff that was going on in my family and in my life. And then about halfway, after about a half hour of being very honest with him, the conversation naturally turned to talk about Jesus. And for half an hour, he says, I can't quote any verses. For half an hour, I just began sharing with him what I've been learning about Jesus. And the guy says, you know, you could never talk about that stuff at the hunting camp together. But that's what I really needed in my life. This guy was sky high because a door opened and he stepped through it. 90% of people. You know, who are the people that God will use to reach out in this culture? Our Decapolis with legions today. Who's the people? It's people who are embedded in and know the language, like the food, know the sports teams, know where people live, how things work. Who are those missionaries? Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Yeah, I hope you'll own that. Because it's real easy for the evil one to come along and kind of do what those people were doing to me this week. Shame, 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 shame. You're not good enough. You're not good enough to be an influence for me. You're not good enough to talk to someone about Jesus. Anyone know what Romans 8 1 says? Yeah. How much condemnation? If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And if you ever feel that cloud of condemnation, like you're not good enough, you're not, you know, you can't do anything, it just hovers over you, it is never from God if you know Christ. Never. Satan comes along and he knows our name, but he calls us by our sin. Jesus comes along. Yeah, he knows about our sin, but he calls us by our name. There's never any condemnation that comes from Jesus. And if you ever in this arena just sense condemnation, God can never use me. Man, that's a lie. That's not coming from above. God made you just the way that you are. He doesn't want you to be someone else. Never think that you've got to be like Billy Graham. Never think you've got to be like Pastor Stephen. Never want to be someone else. God didn't make a mistake with you. He fearfully and wonderfully made you. He's given you the set of circumstances and backgrounds and difficult things and good things so that you can uniquely reach out to your children, grandchildren, maybe a neighbor or two, someone at work, someone going through trouble. He's made you just right and he did not make a mistake. You think about this world, and I think about uh, in the first century, if you would have asked people, who are the people who are going to stand out? Who are the people who will be remembered 2,000 years later? The average person in the Roman Empire would have easily said, oh, that's Caesar, that's Nero. If you would have asked the average person out on the street, well, well, what about, uh, what about those followers of Jesus? They would have laughed in your face and said, those people will never even be thought of. They'll be dead soon and gone forever. But 2,000 years have come and gone, right? We name our children Mary, 
Peter, James, and John. We name our dog Caesar and Nero, right? (laughs) We're here today because ordinary people like Peter, Mary, James, and John, fishermen, tax collectors, teenage girls, we're here today because they just said, I'm going to try to really get the question of who do I say Jesus is? I'm going to try to get that one down. Who do I say Jesus is? And then I'm really going to try to get down who Jesus says that I am. That's what I want to do with leaders. All I want to do is have them get to know who Jesus is. And then for them to get to know who Jesus says they are. Because if you get that down, you're going to be in a place where I know God's just going to do something. I know when you guys, maybe it'll be a week, maybe it'll be three months down the line. Some door's going to open up and you're going to get this little tap by the Holy Spirit. And he's going to kind of whisper, here's what you were talking about at that retreat. Here's somebody who just needs a friend. And they might need to be introduced to your friend Jesus. And when you feel that little tap of God, that little whisper of the Spirit of God, I want you to be in a place where you say, yes, and I'm ready to do that. Because I can, I can guarantee you, I don't know when it'll be, one day, a week, a month, three months, I can guarantee God's going to give every one of you an open door coming up. And I trust this weekend we're going to get a lot clearer so that when it comes, we can confidently and competently in the Spirit of God better knock that ball out of the park. Here's the thing when it comes to our Decapolis and our world. Our hope and our confidence and our identity and our dreams and our future and our destiny does not rest upon our circumstances. It doesn't rest upon the economy, the polls, public opinion, what a court says or doesn't say, whether Caesar is cooperative with us or whether he's uncooperative, or even if disaster or persecution comes our way. Our hope and future rest upon the risen, glorious, reigning, sovereign, holy person of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Is there hope for our worlds, our lives? There is absolutely hope because wherever there's Jesus, there's hope. Wherever there's Jesus, there's hope. No matter what your circumstances is tonight, I pray that the Spirit of God will speak to you and burn that into your life. That you know Jesus or you can get to know Jesus. And Jesus knows you. And there's an adventure of faith that awaits you. And there's a world out there that deeply, deeply needs somebody to say, there's a person who cares about me and my soul. You know, Wednesday afternoon, this is what the press asked me when they called me. Are you really, really, really mad at those people? Are you really mad at those people for what they did 
over the prayer and the pledge, what they did to you. It's kind of sad what happened. I'm not mad at those people. Those people in that room, despite what happened, are the very human beings made in the image of God that God's called me to love where possible to get to know and where possible to share Jesus with them. My job is never to get people to quit sinning. It's not my job. My job is to love human beings and where God allows it for me to share my life and his life with other people and then let him do the work. There was nothing mad in my heart at all. Nothing mad. And it's not mad today. I just felt like, oh God, these are the people who need you. And you love them. And God, would you somehow break through and reach out to them. And I pray that in some way he does and does it soon. That's my heart. I hope that's the kind of heart that God's working and building in you. That you just see people a different way. Here's the way I often tell people. Because you know it's real easy to start raging at people. And just you know put all kinds of people in categories and stereotype. Here's what I say to people. If a blind man stepped on your foot would you be mad at him? Would you? No? Why? Because they're blind right? There's a whole lot of people. You know, the real root problem, it's they're spiritually blind, like I was. And the only thing that changed in my life is Jesus did something really special in my life. That's what I want everybody, everybody, everybody to know Jesus. That's my heart. I hope it'll be yours. I know we're out of time, so I'm just getting out of the way. And Stephen, how do they get in their small groups?